Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in experts and authors to help writers of all genres compose more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, retired Colorado Springs Police Lieutenant Joe Kenda steps into the interrogation room to get his story straight. Joe worked for CSPD for 23 years and six months, most of which was in homicide. He investigated or oversaw 385 homicide cases, and he and his team closed 92% of them before he retired. Through ongoing forensic examination, more of those cold cases are closed each year. Joe is featured on several Discovery Channel television shows, including Homicide Hunter and American Detective, and he's the author of two nonfiction books, I Will Find You, and his latest release, which is entitled Killer Triggers. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Lieutenant Kennedy. It's an absolute honor to have you here. Thank you so much. No, entirely welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm reading your latest book, Killer Triggers, right now, and this is a really incredible read. Uh, For everyone who didn't get an advanced copy of it, what do you want them to know about your book? Well, it's a simple question I asked myself after years and years of investigating murders. It's the why question. The why question is the least important one to the police. Ultimately, that's a jury question, but Mm -hmm. it intrigued me. I don't pretend to understand people, but they do interest me. And I was always curious as to what trigger was pulled in someone for them to make the decision that this was the moment to set a ball of violence in motion. Why did they do this? What is the, What emotional trigger was pulled? And hence the title of the book. Yeah, and I am equally fascinated by people. And also, I, I, yeah, I don't think anyone... I don't think humanity can really be understood. I think we're far too too complex and at, at times unpredictable, even though I think a lot of human behavior tends to kind of fall into some predictable patterns. It does, it does. And you're right, the human mind is a very complicated piece of machinery. Uh, for those who say they understand it, they're lying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If I did understand it, I'd write another book and I could retire to the south of France as the only guy who knew. You'd have to buy my book. That's right. There is no explanation for people's behavior, but there are patterns that emerge. Mm -hmm. And the most common pattern is when emotion overcomes judgment, Mm -hmm. that's when violence occurs. One of my sergeants years ago described it as people reverting to their inner two-year-old. It's actually worse than that. They revert to their worst possible instincts Mm. because what happens in that moment, morality melts, consequences no longer exist, limits are not to be observed. Only the thrill of the bloodletting prevails, Mm. something that exists in all humans. Yeah, and I've been really surprised over the years by the number of, of people who don't recognize that inner potential within them. And my thought has always been that you just haven't been pushed hard enough. Exactly right. Someone hasn't given you the reason yet. If you think about this for a moment, and it's be useful for writers to think about this as well. Mm -hmm. Picture yourself on the Serengeti Plain. Millions of years ago and before you is the animal kingdom. You notice this creature. Four feet tall, walks erect, covered in hair, 
he grunts to other creatures that are similar to him. They seem to understand each other. And you see that they make weapons and are able to kill animals three or four times their size. You are looking at early man. And while you're fascinated by this clever little creature, it would not be in your interest to try to pet him and kill us. That's the reality. Yes. Yeah. And um, I really, uh, really loved the disclaimer that is kind of tucked away in, in the front matter of your book. And I, I want to just re read it really quickly here for the benefit of the audience. Please note that the names of certain individuals in this book have been changed to protect their identities. Most of them were innocents whose lives were caught up in horrendous crimes through no faults of their own. Others were given pseudonyms because they were never convicted of a crime, even if they weren't exactly babes in the woods. That was an incredibly powerful reminder to me, even with my limited experience in homicide, um, that this isn't a work of fiction. And the crimes that the readers are about to witness through your words actually happened to real people. They certainly did. With your experience over the years, um, I understand it was uh, something like 300 homicides that, that you closed during your career. There were <clears throat> a total of a period of 21 years. Uh, I had 387 homicide cases yeah. that came across. Either I was responsible for investigating or oversaw the investigation of, and of those, I resolved 356 by arrest, which is a clearance rate of 92%, which is somewhat of a record in the modern day. It is. There were 31 unsolved, and presently there are three of those have been resolved by cold case units using advances in DNA technology. So I'm down to 28 unsolved. When the mid-sized agencies that I worked for didn't have a, at the time, dedicated, uh, certainly not a dedicated homicide unit, and at the time even really didn't have a dedicated uh, persons crimes unit, we had uh, narcotics and sex crimes, and then our general investigations. And so a lot of our guys had a really diverse caseload of persons <clears throat> and property crimes. And in hindsight, I really think that our victims and their families would have benefited greatly from uh, a specialized unit or in reality, um, because there were so few homicides having an outside expert come in, a regional task force, someone kind of like how officer-involved shootings are investigated, to make sure that those victims and their families got the justice and whatever closure they could have. I agree. I agree. It's a reality of the modern day, and even the day gone by, that all agencies are different sized. Mm -hmm. All these have different budgets, all have different problems are required to have general practitioners and they board specialists. A specialist is in order, and particularly in the case of violent crime, to distinguish the elements of the event and to make certain that all bases are covered. That is a luxury that provided to larger agencies who can do that. And smaller ones suffer because they cannot. And I, I think it's, uh, it's still surprising even to me that I think the average police department in the U.S. only has 12 cops, which seems right. really amazing. <laughs> it, it, it is amazing. We, uh, we, as Americans, we have a habit of trusting to luck as opposed to planning. It's unfortunate. Yes.
And most of my uh, specialization over the years was in uh, field training, narcotics and SWAT. And because of that, I only uh, really worked maybe a, a little, a few more than maybe a dozen death investigations. Most of those obviously going to be a suicide and uh, accidents. I only had really intimate involvement with one attempted homicide and one successful homicide, uh, both of which were domestics. And the biggest difference that I experienced working those cases was was the weight, the, the, the gravity of the investigation and absolutely making sure that we got it right, both for the victim and uh, in fairness, anyone that we named as a suspect or ultimately arrested for the crime. And I, I don't think that that reality will surprise very many people, except that I don't think it can ever really be translated through movies, TV, or books. I, I don't think you can really explain the experience of carrying that burden. I think it's something you have to witness and experience yourself. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that we have a certain Hollywood view of homicide investigation and people who do it for a living. And the Hollywood view is nowhere near the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, one is a human involved in this effort, and you suffer sometimes right along with your victims. It is a reality of it. If you cannot do that, then you have lost your humanity. I knew of no one in homicide who had lost their humanity, including me. Mm -hmm. You suffer with these people. You live with them for two years. By the time a murder case gets to court, you've spent about a year and a half of two years of motions by the defense of arguments over this and over that uh, before you ever actually get in front of a jury. So it is a time commitment, an effort commitment. You're part of the family of the victim. Mm -hmm. You talk to them every day. You sit with them in court. It's a very involved event. And when you do that all the time, there are moments when even though you guard yourself against it, someone penetrates your armor around your heart like with a stiletto mm -hmm. and they reach you and you cry right along with them. I've done it. And I, I would really, really be fearful of, of that moment. If you ever did lose your humanity as, as a cop and your ability to, to be appalled and to, experience the full range of, of human emotions because the, the depravity that you witness um, is is really you know it's really unbelievable um, and well it is and you have to maintain that presence and I knew when it was time for me to stop I had done it for 23 years and six months on the job most of that was in homicide and at the very end, Everything around me became a white noise. I wouldn't listen. I had reached my emotional limit. I'd punished my family for over 20 years because the job was first and they were second. And <clears throat> they didn't deserve that, but I did that intentionally. Mm -hmm. I was so driven to rid the world of people who did harm to others that did harm to my own family. It's the reality of it. It is. And it, it is such an easy trap to fall into with the culture of police work and also just simply the intrinsic drive to do right, to, to hold these people accountable uh, for what they've done to others is 
an incredibly powerful drug. It's incredibly addicting. And it becomes very, very easy to uh, constantly answer your work emails to, you know, to want to be at work. And I would say probably the first five or six years of my career was the absolute worst with that, that I would be at home with my family wishing that I had a reason to go to work. And it wasn't anything that they had done wrong or that I didn't want to be there. It's just, I simply preferred to be out on the hunt and it's incredibly destructive for families. It is. And why many policemen suffer divorces, they suffer bad situations involving relationships because they, they have a mistress and the mistress is the police department. Mm -hmm. And because that I, I really hold probably equal, maybe even greater esteem for for cop families who in, endure this and watch us leave every day or run out the door when the the call out pager goes off, knowing we have no idea really what we're running into because the situation on the ground is always different than what dispatch initially finds out. But um, I can't imagine being in their position and watching my wife or my kid or my parents run out the door to go do the things that <laughs> I now knew needed to be done. And I, I really think they are grossly underappreciated in, in allowing cops to be cops. I agree. I absolutely agree. My wife would as well. <laughs> <laughs> I said that uh, my wife and I survived it together. We met each other in high school. And I wasn't a policeman when I got married, but I became a policeman and I became dedicated to it. it the most important thing to me, she was aware of that. And I had a lot of venom in me as a result of being that policeman. And two years after I retired, I was sitting at my kitchen table, minding my own business, I might add. And my, hi. I said, in case you haven't noticed, I've been sitting here for two hours. She said, I know, but you're the guy I married again. And I thought that was very nice. Well, that is a huge accomplishment. With this second career that you've taken on writing true crime and then obviously working in, uh, uh, in television, what, how has all of that changed your life, your family relationships, and, and, and what has that experience been like for you? Probably the most glaring part. No one was ever happy to see me. Everybody knew who I was. I was on the news every night. I was the murder guy. So everybody knew my face. This is when I was actually working as a policeman. And I become this TV person and a writer. And everyone's happy to see me. And it's so weird. It's like, you, you want my autograph? Why would you want that? You know, it's a very... Still, after all these years of doing it, it's very odd. They came looking for me. I didn't go looking for them uh, mm -hmm. uh, about being on television. Uh, and uh, it just sort of fell out of the sky and uh, pretty amazing, but it did. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became very successful. So here we are. This has to feel at least a little bit like maybe recompense for all the water that you and your family had to carry for all those years. I, you're right. It is a recompense. I mean, I'm able to do things now for my wife I would have never been able to do as a policeman. She is a nurse. 
She rides in limousines and five-star hotels and first-class air. She kind of likes that. She's now a madam. She likes that too. <laughs> so there is some payback here for the circumstances. For this latest release, Killer Triggers, um, what do you really hope that readers take away from this book and, and this effort? They have to understand warning signs they see in people. Uh, there's one particular chapter, the most important, I believe, in terms of the public being aware of it, is about dementia. Dementia can lead to a dramatic change in behavior due to transient ischemic attacks. Doctors refer to them as TIAs. They are little strokes that happen to dementia patients that can change the blood flow in the brain and dramatically alter one's personality. You have a Christian woman who suddenly becomes profane and aggressive. And everybody's saying, what the hell is changing this person? Well, it's medical, but they are potentially dangerous as is discovered in chapter three of that book. Yeah, what's next on the, on the docket? What's, what's your current work in progress? What can readers and listeners look forward to, to seeing and reading from you next? Well, we're not sure about that. We've only had a couple of weeks of, of um, marketing on this one. <laughs> so we're, we're thinking about it. You know, it's a uh, week. My wife and I were thinking about, well, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Uh, I'm still on TV. I still have a series on Discovery Plus called American Detective, where I review other cases by other detectives. And uh, it's been very successful on their new streaming service. And that's going to continue. And I will eventually decide in some time or other that I will, what I will do next in terms of a book. But uh, I never thought I'd write a book. I've written two of them. And they've been very successful. So good for me. Yes. Uh, all about honesty, I think, more than anything else. Perfect. I am so grateful for your time, LT. Wish you and your family the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. All right. Be safe out there. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been Lieutenant Joe Kenda. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there. Thank you.